Thank you, Carol. It's good to be with y'all. My name is Dave, one of the pastors here. If I haven't got a chance to meet you yet, last week I was at Frontline Shawnee. Um, Frontline, as JJ mentioned, um, as he did a great job with those announcements, Frontline is one church. We have one mission, uh, one shared set of values and distinctives, uh, yet we are five congregations in downtown Oklahoma City, South Oklahoma City, Yukon, um, Shawnee, and Edmond. That's five, right? Yeah. And last week I got to be in Shawnee. It was a real blast, um, but I missed you all. It's good to be back here at home in Edmond. And yet um, it was really sweet because Pastor Chad Kinser, who's the teaching pastor downtown, just like I think on two separate occasions, I just went out of his way to just um, dote on you all and, and just talk about how amazing Frontline Edmond is as a congregation. And it was really sweet too because a lot of you went out of your way to just talk to me about how amazing Chad is and what a great preacher he is and how much you enjoyed having him. I was like in the crosshairs of encouragement just all week. And uh, you're both right. Chad is amazing and, and you're amazing. And so I'm glad you guys got to be with one another last week. And uh, and I think the Leonards uh, hopped out already, but um, just to heap additional encouragement on them. I had the honor of officiating their wedding. I think, you know, we've been a congregation for eight years, so they've been here the whole time. And uh, just to, to humbly speak as a uh, a spiritual father representing the the elders of this church. Um, proud, so proud of them and to love them deeply. So let's keep them in our prayers. Um, so we'll, we will miss them, but this, this will continue to be home in every way that uh, we can be for them. So let's pray with one another for one another. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this moment. I thank you for the, your word, this group of people, this service, this day. And we, we thank you for your guidance in our lives. And we pray that we would have, as scripture is open before us, we would have open hearts and open eyes to receive and see everything that you have for us. And as I so often pray, help me serve my friends well as we seek to, to lift you up and celebrate the beauty of Jesus, who you are and what you've done and what that means for us. We pray this, Jesus, in your name, God's people said. Amen. Allow me to read a poem by G.K. Chesterton entitled Comparisons. It's a short, I think, powerful poem. If I set the sun beside the moon, and if I set the land beside the sea, and if I set the town beside the country, and if I set the man beside the woman, I suppose some fool We'll talk about one being better. Comparisons. Our world is, is filled with people who would meet Mr. Chesterton's definition of some fool. We all at times probably fall into the trap of comparisons. And, and what particularly that la those final two lines of this short, short poem point to and highlight and expose for us that is a reality in our culture, in our church, in our own lives so often is the problem of enmity. The waters that we swim in in this world that are so often waters of enmity. Enmity is the state of feeling or being actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. And enmity is a fruit of, a result of sin. Humanity's rebellion against God's rule brought about enmity. 
Enmity exists between man and God. Men in our sinfulness resist the holiness of God. Enmity resists, uh, exists between people instead of loving one another and serving one another and loving in shalom, living in shalom, peaceful presence and purpose. We abuse one another, use one another. Enmity exists between nations. That individual enmity, it, 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 in individuals, it converges in the form of nation rising against nation. And certainly, enmity exists between men and women and woman and man. So often, enmity is at the heart of how men and women view one another in a broken world. And we can, can identify that and experience that by just examining, you know, secular movements. Whether it's a secular men's movement, more often than not, they have enmity towards women. Viewing women as obstacles to overcome or objects to consume or conquer. They're built on misogyny that's evil and oppressive. And that can be obviously identified in ways like violence and abuse against women, that, that can also be subtle and hidden in ways like an abdication of responsibilities to protect and serve. At the same time, a lot of secular women's movements hold enmity towards men, viewing manhood as intrinsically toxic. What could be defined as radical feminism, not a feminism that's just advocating and fighting for the rights and equality of women, but a, a radical feminism that's built on an ideology that sees masculinity as inherently bad and seeks to erase all gender differences between the masculine and feminine. It can be seen in sentiments and, and, and statements like, uh, as one politician said decades ago, Women need men like fish need bicycles, which is funny, but it's a lie. Or more recently, the title of an article that I read that said healthy masculinity is an oxymoron like healthy cancer. See, both enmity that, that can be seen in misogyny or radical feminism, they're dead-end streets. They don't lead us anywhere. It's not a, a good story. It doesn't lead to flourishing which is why it's important for the church to remember the beauty of the gospel that Jesus is the only one who can reconcile and restore where enmity exists. The good news of Jesus, who he is, what he's done, what that means for us, bringing peace with God, bringing, bringing peace with one another where enmity exists, Jesus alone can actually bring family about Moms and dads and husbands and wives and brothers and sisters as a part of the family of God. I'm reminded what Jesus said in John 13, 35, where he said, hey, your love for one another, speaking to his disciples the night before he was going to the cross, he said, your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. And so in a, in a moment in time where maybe more than ever before there's enmity in culture between men and women, maybe just maybe one of the most powerful ways that we can proclaim the love of God as the family of God is to honor and celebrate and love one another in Christ Jesus, men and women. God loves men and masculinity was his design, his idea. God loves women and femininity. 
Both are his glorious creations. And his grand creation and story, men and women are equal in value and dignity, but we're not interchangeable or the same. Thanks be to God. Our differences are divinely ordered and are incredibly glorious. And us together display something about his image and who he is that's wonderful. See, one of our distinctives, our values of, as a church, is gender redeeming, meaning that we want God to shape our masculinity if we're men, and we want God to shape our femininity as we're women. To the, to the soul, we are a man or a woman made in the image of God, and when we come to Christ, he's forming us to be the women or men he has called us to be. And so we're going to do something a bit uh, different in these coming three Sundays. We're going to fast forward to the end of this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, and we're going to go ahead to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13, this verse, and we're going to spend three weeks exploring together, meditating upon this final charge, this one last imperative that Paul gives the Corinthian church, specifically the men in the Corinthian church. And so we're going to have a bit of a, a series within a series and talk about masculine virtue. So why take three weeks to do this? Well, we all need to know God's wisdom for what it means to be a man there's always an effort underway to erase masculinity, erase femininity, to per pervert both. And when it comes to, to manhood in the culture, this can take some different forms. It can come first in the rejection of masculinity in the form of effeminacy. Now, femininity is glorious. Femininity is glorious, but there's an effeminacy that's a perversion in the life of a man where there's a rejection of masculinity in which one can parody the feminine. But more often than not, probably in our city, in our context, the, the more common and second way this plays out is a foolish caricature or a faux masculinity that you could call machismo. Masculinity is a glorious thing in Christ, but machismo is a, is a perversion of masculinity. It's often a sick cocktail of enmity towards women combined with the selecting of cultural male stereotypes that have nothing to do with actually virtue, essence, or service. To, to be a virtuous man doesn't mean you drive a pickup truck or hunt deer or like MMA or drink beer. None of that leads to masculine virtue. And I like a lot of those things. <laughs> but none of those things are necessarily bad in and of themselves. They just don't make a man. Consider Jesus the ultimate picture of masculine virtue. He didn't drive a pickup truck. He tended to walk most places. At best, he, drove, he rode a donkey, you know. It's closest to four-wheel drive he got. He wasn't a big hunter. He, he fished a little bit, I think. He, he, he wasn't interested in the latest craft IPA. It seems like he preferred a good red wine. When he got into a physical altercation that, that we have recorded in all of the Gospels, he didn't use Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He made a whip and drove people out of the temple. <laughs> to be men of Christian virtue... It can't happen by rejecting the pursuit of masculinity or embracing some parody that culture is going to hold out for us. 
that our favorite podcaster is going to define for us. It means that we need God's wisdom for what it means to be a man. And so that leads to the question, hey, why would we talk about this on a Sunday with you ladies in the room, with you sisters in the room? Why not have like a, a, a men's event again like we did earlier in this year where just the men gather together and talk about this? And, and the first answer to that question is simply men need women. Read Lord of the Flies. <laughs> Go back in time and visit my, my college apartment. <laughs> Genesis 2 tells us that, that God said it's not good for man to be alone and that, that is true of husbands and wives, but, it, but it's true beyond that. It transcends that. Men need moms and sisters, spiritual moms and spiritual sisters. Much of true masculinity is directed towards the blessing of women. And when men aren't in community with godly women, men tend to not grow towards maturity and responsibility. To be a godly man is to learn to sacrifice and live for the blessing of women in a real way. And a, a godly woman's presence brings life and her presence helps men desire to grow into mature masculinity. And so to you sisters in the room, hear me say this, if I can, on behalf of the men of the church, we need your presence. We need your prayers. Prayers for your sons and your husbands, your brothers, for your friends. We need your encouragement. We need your support. We need your blessing to grow to be the men God has called us to be. And you might rightly be thinking, like, well, why aren't we having a series on, on feminine virtue? And that's a, that's a fair question. That's probably a natural question. Here, here are just a few honest answers. Um, first, we, we did have that series fairly recently. We did a seven-week series several years ago called Feminine Strength the World Needs. It's online. It's really good. It's probably worth revisiting. And it was great. Second, we, we likely will visit that again soon as a focus as a church. But third, you know, the elders of this church regularly pray. And as we pray, we, we pray for y'all and we also seek God's direction. And we feel like it's been God's direction. It feels right to us. And as we can discern the Holy Spirit to take this time to focus on masculine virtue for the good of the church. And, and just to say, like, one of the things, if I am reflective and look back over probably particularly the last three years of this church and this congregation especially, I am so thankful for the women's discipleship that's happened and the ways that that's grown. I'm so thankful for women like Stacey Russell and Kristen Jones and Emily Polk and Ashley McBride who have led and served and gathered and, and we've grown in, in feminine virtue and women's discipleship. Praise be to God for that. And we're not going to, like, take the foot off the gas for that. And yet, I think there's an invitation for, uh, from the Lord for the men of this church, in a real way, to step into greater growth when it comes to masculine virtue. So why talk about this on a Sunday with you ladies in the room? Men need women, and also women need men. To be a woman is, is to be glorious and essential and important. It's the heart of the leadership of this church for women to delight in God's design for femininity. 
It's powerful to reflect upon the creation account in Genesis and see that actually before sin entered the world, God said something wasn't good and it wasn't good for women not to be around. To be a woman and pursue Christian femininity is is a glorious pursuit and we want the women of this church to reject the lies of sameness and interchangeability. We want women to know God's design for masculinity and femininity. I'm thinking about daughters I have in the room. I want them to be raised up in a church where they're taught as young women about God's call for what it means to be a man. And that one day when a young man comes to pursue my daughter, one of the things that she's evaluating when she looks at his life is not just is he handsome or is he funny or is he smart, By the grace of God, she would say, is he watchful? Does he stand firm in the faith? Does he act like a man? Is he courageous? Is everything he does done in love? Not that they would look for perfection, because only one man has ever been perfect, but they'd look for a trajectory of masculine maturity for the glory of God. I want the moms in this church to be like the voice of Lady Wisdom that speaks into the the hearts of their sons and daughters, knowing God's vision for what it means to be a woman and a man in Christ. We all need to walk the road of learning God's heart for masculine virtue together. So we're going to look at these first two instructions that Paul gives to the men in the church of Corinth today. Be watchful, one, and two, stand firm in the faith. Next week, we'll look at his charge to be strong and act like men. And then finally, in the third week, we will look at, most importantly, what it means to do everything in love. And then we'll jump back into where we left off in the middle of the book of 1 Corinthians. So first, be watchful. Be watchful. What am I supposed to do as a man when I follow Jesus? Paul in his charge says, one, be watchful. This translates to a Greek word that means to be constantly ready and on the alert. To be on the alert for what? Anything that's going to try to threaten or or move the Christian away from worship and faith and obedience in Jesus. Paul's saying, hey, be on guard. Stay awake. Stay alert. Don't be indifferent. Don't be distracted. Don't be lulled to sleep. Keep your eyes open. Be on the lookout. It would be hard for me to communicate how uninterested I am in the royal family. But weirdly, I've always been interested in the royal guard. (laughs) It starts with the hats, right? Like, what's going on there? Like a 10-pound bearskin hat. But I've I've historically really have been deeply interested in what is up with these guys. And and, and even this week learned more about them as as kind of an illustration was was brought before me as it relates to their job, which reminded me of another story we'll get to. But even as funny as they look, their job is very serious. They are an elite security force. They're trained to be serious protectors. They're not just ornaments around the palace. They're there for a real job that they take dead serious. They're not allowed to laugh or smile. They're not allowed to say anything except 
make way for the queen's guard, which they never say. They scream it in the face of a tourist when they get in their way. Just go down that YouTube rabbit hole um, if you want to, like I did. And they're serious because they have a serious job. It's to be on guard, to be watchful. They're to be unflinching, eyes opened, intense. They're guards with one mission, to be on guard. But what I was reminded of this week is something that happened you know, 40 years ago, which was one early morning in 1982. There was a man who had been up drinking all night at the pub, and he scaled the fence of Buckingham Palace. Then he shimmied up a gutter, and then he found an unlocked window on a second or third floor window, and then he just hung out in the palace for a while. Those royal guards were outside on watch. They didn't see him. Get this. When he got into the palace, he set off alarms twice. And the guard, they responded by turning off the alarm system, assuming that it was just a glitch. He made his way to the queen's bedroom and sat on the foot of her bed. She wakes up to find a strange drunk man in her room wanting to talk. According to her, she picks up her phone and calls security, and they didn't immediately come. You have one job. <laughs> this story makes me so upset. I'm just getting goosebumps. I don't even care about the royal family. I'm like, I know it matters to you people, right? And you're just, you have one job to protect the queen. He's just epically failing time and time again. Eventually, the queen's butler comes in, offers this guy a drink, which is a very British thing to do. You know, it's just like he's being polite to the intruder. Um, so frustrating. And, and eventually, he's arrested, and the queen wasn't harmed, thank, thank God. The, the point is this, like everything, look, the alarm system was in place, royal guard was out front, men were, were monitoring the alarm, and everything looked like it was secure, but in reality, the security was weak. It was unguarded to the simplest of threats. This guy wasn't some super spy. He was a disturbed drunk man who on a whim decided he wanted to talk to the queen, and he made it easily past that security. And so I'm, I'm looking at Paul's charge, and then the story is just a simple illustration to help me ask, like, hey, even though I might feel like my, my guardedness and my watchfulness for my life, my family's life, looks like it's strong, I think it's easier to think we have things locked down when in reality we're not nearly as watchful as we think we are. Paul's pleading. Be on guard. Be watchful. And Scripture is so helpful because it gives us direction as to, to what this means. What does, it live, what does it mean to live a life of watchfulness, being on guard? Well, Jesus in Mark 13, three times between verses 33 and 37, he, he charges his disciples to be watchful. And in, in this context from Jesus, the, the direct application is to remember that he's going to come again to live in hope and readiness for him to come again. We, we spent our entire Advent this season focusing on essentially this. May we not forget to not live just as this life is all there is, but, but remember that we're a part of a kingdom that is coming. 
that is here, that is to come in the full fruition when Jesus comes again. Being watchful, Jesus tells us, is, is prayerful dependence on God. He goes on in Mark 14 to, to tell his disciples to keep watch, stay awake, and pray so that they won't enter into temptation. Being watchful means having a, a life that's rooted in prayer, depending on our Heavenly Father for what we need. Like Jesus taught us to pray, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done, not my will, but, but your will. Being watchful means praying with, with gratitude. I always am convicted by this. In Colossians 4, verse 2, Paul writes, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful in thanksgiving. Professor Joseph Ria in his, his uh, 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 article, uh, Gratitude is Hard to Do, I've cited this before, he, he says this, our culture assumes that normal people operate with a consistent level of discontentment. We think that real equals dissatisfied. We definitely don't want to live in a Botox spirituality that papers over real problems with a smile, but we don't want to steer so far from that ditch that we fall into its opposite. Listen to this. Our society's gravitational pull is already towards ingratitude. How true is that? Paul's writing here to the Colossian church, and he's saying, hey, ingratitude is like a sedative that's going to lull you to not be on guard, but, but just numb you out in grumbling discontentment. And keeping watch means actually holding before you in prayers of gratitude and reminding your heart of the endless ways in which God is good to us. And most importantly, I think being watchful, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, means resisting the devil. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Peter writes, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Being watchful, men, is, is remembering that we have a real enemy who does not sleep but spends 24-7 prowling, seeking to steal and kill and destroy. And so being watchful means that we're on the lookout to recognize his attack and tactics. Paul's giving an imperative, be on guard. Following Jesus means being watchful. Guardedness is at the heart of being a disciple. And one unguarded moment can cost so much. See, this is what stresses me out in my life and, and brings, brings like a real fear. And, and for my brothers in the room too, is that we're most vulnerable when we're unaware of how vulnerable we are. When you live out a flippant attitude of it will never happen to me, that's a real scary place. It reminds me of those foolish men who in the, in the ring or in the cage begin to showboat and they're dancing when they should have their guard up and they always get knocked out because they forget they're in a fight. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, Paul speaks to this issue of presumption when it comes to being watchful. He says, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So when I'm in the place in my life, or brothers, you're in the place in your life where you say, you, I would never, I would never, that would never happen to me. I don't have to watch out for that. Look, we might not have the propensity to fall in some ways, but we all have the capacity to fall in every way. You look at a man like David, who, who God described as a man after his own heart, and yet profound ways he was unguarded and had profound falls. 
we have a bit of a un um, traditional or at least unintentional family tradition, I should say, of going down to the Wichita Mountains on Martin Luther King Day and hiking. We've done it like three out of the last five years, I think. And so we went this year just a few weeks ago, and uh, we hiked up the Elk Mountain Trail, and it was my bad. We hiked far longer than we sh- should have. We got like a, you know, children ranging from 13 down to four, and we, we, we went hard, and uh, I sh- it was my fault. But that means that, like, towards the end of the hike, particularly the four-year-old was done, right? Like, he was past his expiration date for the fun hike. And what was happening is that he and I were in the back little deacon. And, you know, that, that trail, particularly towards the end of the Elk Mountain Trail, it's really steep. It's always more dangerous coming down the mountain. And there's, as, as far as it comes to falls, there's boulders, there's cactus. There's just a ton of just little things to look out for and things her little four-year-old and Deacon had been a trooper and he had gone hard and he had hiked like a big boy and and his brothers and sisters were ahead so he kept on wanting to run ahead and I kept on telling him hey don't run away from me stay by daddy don't run watch where you're stepping and he would like kind of obey for a split second you know like he'd start to run and I'd say hey don't run stay next to me and he'd like jog And I told him once, I told him twice, and then he was running down the trail, and I said, hey, don't run away from daddy, you're going to fall, stay by me. And he said, I'm not going (laughs) to, and just face planted, you know? And I picked him up, and I said, I told you so. No, I didn't. I didn't. I I picked him up, and I said, I'm so sorry, buddy, and I I held him, and I thought, I told you so, right? And, and this is the truth. There's something like actually spiritually profound about that illustration. Four-year-olds tend to do that. Forty-year-olds tend to do that. Every man in this room is going to, to fail to be watchful, and we're all going to fall. And the beauty of the gospel is that there is a loving father who's going to be there to pick us up. And so you might even now be experiencing shame in ways that you failed to be watchful and and the gospel would speak truth to you and say, hey, you have a loving father who's not saying, I told you so. He's saying, I'm here, take my hand, let me hold you. And listen, listen to me. And yet, none of us are beyond falling to the schemes of the enemy. None of us are beyond running away from a father who's giving us loving instruction. Maybe we be watchful. Two, quickly, stand firm in the faith. So the danger of the church in Corinth was they were exposed continually to all sorts of false teaching. It was confusing. It was foggy. There was false teaching all around them. One philosopher said this about truth. One so-called religious leader said another thing about truth. And Paul is saying, hey, in the midst of a culture of confusion, stand firm in the faith. That phrase means to firmly be committed in conviction and belief. Paul is saying, hey, stand firm in the truth of the gospel. Jesus is the son of God. He died for sinners. He rose again from the dead. And faith in him is the one way for eternal life. God's grace given through faith in Jesus will come again. Stand firm on these core truths that have been passed down to us that I'm sharing with you, church in Corinth. Be planted. Have your roots grow deeper in God's truth. I read an essay recently by Mark Twain and the idea and and the spirit of standing firm 
I think he ca- captures in, in some ways. Twain wrote this. He said, it doesn't matter what the press says. It doesn't matter what the politicians or the mob say. It doesn't matter if the whole country decides that something wrong is something right. When the mob and the press and the whole world tell you to move, your job is to plant yourself like a tree beside the river of truth and tell the whole world, no, you move. Paul's charge reminds me of the third chapter of Daniel in the Old Testament that gives us an account of three men who stood firm in the faith. I'm so happy that we, we continually share this story with our children so it's embedded in, in their lives, in their hearts. The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three young men who were in exile. They were away from home, and yet God in his sovereignty had, had put them in a place of influence and a place of strength in this empire of Babylon. And things seemed to be looking good for them until Nebuchadnezzar II, I think we have a, a picture of the historic Nebuchadnezzar, decided he needed to build a 90-foot tall, 9-foot wide idol of the primary god of the empire of Babylon. And he decided he needed to make a rule that everyone had to bow down to this idol. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these friends, they stood firm in the faith and they said, no, we won't, we won't bow, king. And the king responded and said, well, if you won't bow, then you're going to burn. And he mocked them and said, well, God will be able to save you then. And paraphrasing, these men essentially said, God can save us, but even if he doesn't, we're going to stand firm in the faith. See, they knew God's word. They knew what Moses had written in Exodus 20, that you must not have any other God but me. You must not take for yourself an idol or have any kind of image or anything in the heavens or in the earth or in the seas. You must not bow down and worship them for I, the Lord, your God, I'm a jealous God who will not tolerate your affections for any other gods. This is commandment one. And these three friends believed it. They had faith in the one true God. And so since they stood firm, this this king, he throws a fit, and in his fury, he had this furnace. Nebuchadnezzar was a builder, and so he had this furnace to to make bricks. And so it was probably 1,000 degrees Celsius normally. He heats it up seven times, Scripture tells us, the, the normal temperature, enough to melt anything, let alone a man. And the soldiers who opened the doors, this fire was so hot, the soldiers who opened the doors of this furnace to throw these three friends in, they die themselves. But after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were bound and thrown into the furnace under the judgment of the most powerful king, under the condemnation of the most powerful empire, on the face of the earth at that time, real power is revealed. Daniel 3, verse 24, Then King Nebuchadnezzar stood astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth 
is like a son of the gods. See, I believe that this is not just someone who appears to be one of the sons of the gods. What Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar saw in that moment was the son of God, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, who entered into that fire with those friends because they stood firm and they were not burned. They were saved. See, there's a profound lesson that's here for us as men today that when we stand firm in the faith, we're never standing alone. We're always standing with Jesus. He's with us. And there's always a time in our life where we're going to be tempted to, commanded to compromise. So you can, you can believe what you want about truth, but you, you also need to bow down to this thing. And worship and obedience, fidelity to Christ will demand that we, we say, no, we won't move. We're planted like a tree by the, the river of truth. We stand firm in the faith. We won't move. We're standing with our King and our Savior, Christ Jesus. These three men stood in faith and found that they weren't standing alone. Every time we stand in faith, we're never standing alone. We're standing with our King Jesus. Let's stand and pray.